Tonight our message, the unquenchable love. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray together. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the satisfaction, the security, and the salvation we have in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, so much that you have given us hope in this crazy world that we live in. In this scary world, you've given us a future. We thank you so much for the hope of your soon coming. We thank you for the hope that soon you're going to put an end to sin and suffering and all evil. It will finally be eradicated. Lord, we look forward to this time. We're tired of living in this world. We're tired of seeing our friends and our family members fall into Satan's traps. Lord, we want to go home. We want to be ready for your coming. So Lord, as we study your word tonight, make us more ready. And as we tackle this big topic of hell, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts, give us wisdom and understanding. Lord, I pray that your truth will be clear tonight, that it would set us free from the distorted picture that Satan has painted concerning your beautiful character. Lord, I pray that we would see you more clearly than ever before. Bless us now, Lord Jesus. I pray, my Father, that you'd hide me behind the cross. Would you please speak to me and through me, to the hearts of your children. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our message is entitled, The Unquenchable Love, God's Love in Hellfire. You see, this topic of hell, as I mentioned before, is one of the most misunderstood topics in all of Scripture. And this topic, wrongly understood, paints a grotesque, hideous, and terrible picture of God in the minds of many people. But this same topic, rightly understood, magnifies the beauty of the Lord's love in a most powerful and profound way. Let me just tell you, how most people think this topic, or how most people understand the topic of hell. It was in 1741 in a small town called Enfield in the state of Massachusetts that the famous revivalist preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached an infamous sermon that was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I want you to notice this sermon that he preached about hellfire and his understanding of this topic. Listen to it as I quote from this famous or infamous sermon. He said that the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over a fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Then he continues, there will be no end to your horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever of boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any and any rest at all. 
This was his understanding about the topic of hell. And friends, I just want to tell you right now that I don't believe this at all. The Bible does not teach what this preacher just said. We're going to see it tonight. But notice another famous revivalist preacher by the name of Samuel Hopkins. He also had the same understanding about a God that is vindictive, a God that loves to see the wicked burn forever. Notice how he described hell. Samuel Hopkins said, that the smell of their torment shall ascend up forever and ever in the sight of the blessed before their eyes. This display of the divine character and glory will be in favor of the redeemed and the most entertaining and the highest pleasure to those that love God. He says that the highest pleasure of the redeemed is see the wicked burn forever. Should the eternal torment and fires be extinguished, it would in a great measure put an end to the happiness and glory of the blessed. What a hideous picture that many preachers have painted concerning the God of the Bible. And friends, these were preachers back in the day, but friends, this belief is still held as a common belief in many, in fact, most Christian churches today. I want you to notice another man by the name of Bill Wise. He lives today. And he claimed to have had a vision from God that took him to hell for 23 minutes. And he wrote a book about it, 23 Minutes in Hell. And this was a vision he claimed to see from God of hellfire. And he was interviewed on Fox News. And I want you to notice his description of hellfire and the fate of the wicked. And I found myself falling through the air and landed in a prison cell in hell. It was so unbearably hot, far beyond the ability to sustain life. I wondered how could I be alive in this heat? You have to fight and gasp for any tiny bit of air, and this is how you breathe in hell. It's like, you don't have enough air. The odors in hell are so foul and putrid and disgusting. It's the smell of uh, burning sulfur and uh, an open sewer, uh, burning flesh. Everything you can imagine that's terrible. I had absolutely no strength in my body. You're completely void of any kind of strength in hell. Any movement took tremendous effort. It's completely terrifying beyond any words I can ever paint a picture of. I noticed there were these two uh, creatures in the cell. I didn't realize what, realize what they were yet, but they were pacing and they had a hatred for God and for me. They weren't animal and they weren't human either. I don't know what they were, but um, they were like large protruding jaw, huge teeth, claws. And the one grabbed me and picked me up and threw me into the wall. I felt bones break. The other one picked me up and dug claws into my chest. It had about foot-long claws. And I collapsed on the floor. They had no mercy whatsoever. I was taken out of the cell, and I was placed over next to this large pit of fire, raging flames, hundreds of feet in the air. And this is where I first saw people. There were people actually burning, literally burning in hell. It was not metaphorical or allegorical fire. It was real, literal fire. And the people were screaming. It was so loud and deafening to hear all these people scream. And uh, the most awful sight I can't even really describe to you. There were all kinds of creatures around this uh, perimeter. Uh, you know, deformed, twisted-looking creatures. There were snakes and maggots and uh, creatures that were large, 12 and 13 feet tall and some small. Uh, everything had a distinct evilness about it. I wouldn't want to go back there for five seconds. If anybody could see it for just that amount of time, they would change real quick. The fear level in hell is so intense. It's so far beyond anything I can describe. I felt completely isolated, uh, lonely, 
hopeless. There's no one going to come rescue you, no one to protect you. There's no Calvary coming over to hell to protect you. You're alone there. There's no angels, there's no God. Is is the most horrific thing anyone can ever imagine. You wouldn't want your worst enemy to end up in hell. Hell is a real place. You want to avoid it at all costs. Brother Bill Wise travels all around the world sharing his vision of hell in many different churches and many different audiences. This is a common belief, friends, in the Christian world. That people believe that unrepentant sinners are going to spend an eternity in, an eternity in hell. A terrible place of burning and torture with no relief. And they believe that Satan and demons are the superintendents of hell. Employed by God to torture those who have not accepted the grace of God. And so as we think about these common beliefs in the Christian world, the question we need to ask, is this true? Is this the correct biblical picture of God? And does God hate sinners and love to see them burn? Well, friends, I'm going to say right now, there's absolutely nothing biblical about what uh, Brother Bill Wise said. As, pre as preachers are painting this picture of God, a God of vindictive anger that loves and is, finds, pleasures in, uh, finds pleasure in seeing sinners burn and tortured, millions of people are turning away from Christianity in disgust. The misunderstanding of hell has created more atheists, agnostics, infidels, and skeptics more than any other misrepresented topic in the Bible. In fact, a famous example of this is the man by the name of Robert Ingersoll. He is the great agnostic, known as the great agnostic. And Robert Ingersoll is one of the most infamous of unbelievers. And one night when Ingersoll was a little boy, his father took him to a revival. And during that revival, the preacher was describing babies being tortured in hell fire for all of eternity. And after the revival meeting was over, a little Bobby went out and looked into the sky and to the stars, and he thought to himself, if that is what God is like, then I hate God. And he spent the rest of his life fighting against God, the Bible, and religion. You see, this misunderstood topic of hell has caused many people to turn away from Christianity and the Bible in disgust. And friends, God has been grossly mis misrepresented by His people. He has been falsely accused and attacked by the world as a cruel tyrant. You see, this common belief about hellfire was not taught by Jesus, friends. But many people teach it because fear has a way of controlling people's minds. But God never wants us to serve Him out of fear, friends. He only desires the service that is motivated by love and never fear. Can you say amen? In fact, notice what the Bible says in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Please write these scriptures down as we lay a foundation for our study tonight. 2 Timothy 1, 7 says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but what? Power and love and a sound mind. God, brothers and sisters, does not give fear. He gives us power and love and a sound mind. You see, God is not the source of fear. God is the source of love. And whenever the Bible calls us to fear God, that does not mean to be afraid of God. To fear God simply means to reverence God, to respect God, just like children ought to re respect and reverence their parents. But Satan knows and he wants us to be afraid of God because Satan knows that we can't really love someone that we are afraid of. And so the devil is working overtime to paint a distorted picture of God in the minds of the majority of people, causing the world to have an unhealthy and an unbiblical fear of God in the sense that they are afraid of Him, and many people are trying to live right because they're afraid of hellfire. But friends, this service is not acceptable to God. In other words, and by the way, it's not strong enough to keep us faithful. 
You see, the fear of hell and the reward of heaven, neither of these two things is strong in us to keep us faithful to Jesus. The only thing that is powerful enough to keep us faithful is the love of God alone. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love does what? Cast out fear, because fear hath torment, and he that fears is not made perfect in love. The Bible says that there's no fear in God's perfect love. In other words, if we understand the perfect love of Jesus, that love of God will dispel all the darkness of fear from our hearts. Just like when you turn on the light, darkness flees. When the light of the love of God floods the soul, the fear of hellfire, the fear of, uh, of anything, it dissipates from our lives. And the one that is serving God out of fear, the Bible says, is not been made perfect in love. That individual does not truly understand the love of God. And by the way, how is it that we can love God? The Bible says in the very next verse, verse 19, that we love him because he what? First loved us. In other words, love is one of the chief characteristics of God. And when we understand just how much he loves us, we will respond with the same affections. In other words, love awakens a love response from our hearts. And so the thing that we need to be focused on is the love of God. And as we focus on that love, love is developed in our hearts towards this God of love. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, He that does not love does not know God, for God is love. The Bible tells us, that the chief characteristic of, of God is that he is a God of love, not a God of fear, but a God of love. Can you say amen? And the one that does not love doesn't know God. Because friends, when we know God, that word know means more than just intellectual understanding. To word know means to experience. Bible says in Genesis 4 verse 1 that Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bare a son. In other words, the word know in the Bible has the connotation of intimacy, of oneness, of a connection. It's much more than intellectual knowledge. It means to have an experience with the Lord. And friends, when we have an experience with the, 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 the infinite love of God, we're going to have a love in our hearts that would dispel all fear from our lives. Can you say amen? So we find that the chief characteristic of God is love. But here's the next question as we go a little bit deeper tonight. What is God's love likened to in the Bible? In other words, what is the symbol, what is one of the symbols that God uses to help us understand His infinite love? I want you to notice from the book Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. The Bible gives us a very powerful symbol that describes to us just how powerful the love of God is. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Write it down. The Bible says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as what? Death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire. A most vehement flame. In this passage, we see that God's love is likened unto a flame of fire. It's likened unto what? A fire that is stronger than death. And then it says, many waters cannot what? Quench love, if love is likened unto fire. The Bible tells us that the waters can't quench it. It is an unquenchable love. It says many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. 
And so we find that one of the Bible, one of the symbols that the Bible uses to describe the love of God is that of a flame of fire. And friends, we like to describe passion like that of fire. Isn't that right? And so we find very clear, and I want you to keep this in mind because we're going to come back to this in our study tonight, that God's love is symbolized by fire in the Bible. Now, friends, when you think about the love of God, in what two ways does God manifest his love? Notice what the Bible says now in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. Please write it down. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Bible says, it tells us about the character of God. And by the way, this is God speaking, and he is Answering the prayer of Moses, Moses' prayer was this, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your what? And friends, another word for glory in the Bible is character. In other words, Moses was saying, Lord, show me what you're like. Show me who you are, your character, your glory, your name. And this is how God answered the prayer. And he spoke his characteristics, his attributes. And notice what God's love or how God's love is demonstrated. The Bible says the Lord God, what what is the first thing he says? merciful friends how many of you are thankful that god is a merciful god amen the lord god merciful and gracious long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and that will by no means clear the who so we find that god is a god of mercy but the last part says he will not clear the guilty in other words he is not just a god of mercy he is also a god of justice and fairness can you say amen You see, to clear the guilty, that would be unfair. That would be unjust. But God is a just God. He is a merciful God and a just God. In other words, friends, the mercy and the justice of God are two sides of the same coin. This is who God is in his character. He is completely merciful and completely just at the same time. And his mercy is consistent with his justice. And his justice is completely consistent with his mercy. In other words, these two things do not clash against each other. God's mercy is demonstrated in justice. And God's justice is also a sign of his mercy. And we're going to see that very clearly in the topic of hellfire tonight. And so God is love. But how is love demonstrated? Two ways. By the mercy and by the justice of God. Are you with me, yes or no? Notice another one. In the book of Nahum, chapter 1 and verse 3, we find the two sides of the same coin, the justice and mercy of God. The Bible says, the Lord is slow to anger and, of, in, and great in power and will not at all, what? All quit the wicked. In other words, he is a merciful God, yes, but he's also a God of justice. He will not acquit the wicked. In other words, he is a just and fair God. And friends, the Bible makes it clear that God, because of his mercy, is going to put an end to wickedness. He's going to eradicate sin from the universe. You see, it's like this. His mercy, listen, friends, his mercy reaches out in pardon for the sinner. But his justice will not clear the guilty who reject that mercy. And friends, what is the punishment upon the rejecters of the mercy of God? What is the punishment for those who cling to sin and practice wickedness? What is the punishment? The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is what? It's death, friends. God, because of his justice, is going to eradicate sin and wickedness from the universe. The just punishment for sin, the fair punishment for sin, is death. You know why? Because sin is the breaking of the law. And God's law is a law of love. It's a law of life. And it's a law of liberty. 
So to break the law of life, love, and liberty results in death. This is a just punishment for sin. And now some of you might be asking, well, how is this consistent with mercy then? It seems like it goes against mercy. No, friends, listen. How is the death of the guilty in harmony with the love and the mercy of God? And where do we see God's love in hell fire? Well, let me tell you one of the first ways we see it. The question is this. What is the main purpose of hell fire? Why is this topic in the Bible? What is the main purpose? Listen, friends, the main purpose of hell fire is not to punish sinners. The main purpose of hellfire is to purify the universe of evil. That's what it's for, friends. Not to punish sinners, but to purify the universe. God is not a vindictive, angry God. He takes no delight at all in the destruction of the wicked. You see, friends, in destroying the wicked and eradicating evil, God is doing this because he's looking out for the best interest of the entire universe. He's doing it for the sake and the safety and the security of the whole universe. Because sin is like a plague, friends. And what is a plague? It's a disease that spreads and infects those who don't have it. Isn't that right? And so for the the safety and security of the whole universe, God will put an end to sin and wickedness. This is not so much, uh, uh, the, the reason is not to punish sin, but rather the reason is simply to purify the universe. In fact, notice what it says in Nahum chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Please write it down. Nahum chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, the Bible says, The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned. What is burned? The Bible says the earth is burned at his what? Presence. So what burns the earth? It is simply the presence of God. It's the glory of God, which is likened unto fire in the Bible. The Bible says the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is what? So notice in the, in the passage that describes the Lord destroying the world and purifying it by fire, it tells us that this is a good thing. It's not an evil, vindictive thing, friends. It says the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. And with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. He will make an utter end of it and affliction will not rise up the second time. Friends, this passage shows clearly that the reason why God destroys the world and wickedness by fire is not so much to punish people because he's angry and he wants to get back at those who have hurt him and broken his law. No, friends. It's simply to purify the universe, to put an end to affliction, sin, and suffering in the universe. And friends, if this makes sense, would you please say amen? In other words, it is his goodness. The Bible says the Lord is good. It is his goodness that compels him to put an end to sin. In fact, notice in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 27, the Bible tells us concerning God's kingdom. It says, but there shall by no means enter it anything that does what? defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life concerning the kingdom of heaven the bible says that nothing that would defile will enter into that eternal kingdom in other words every defiling cause in the universe is going to be eradicated and what is the main defiling thing it's sin friends the breaking of the holy law of love life 
and liberty. And so sin must be eradicated. God does it in justice, but this is an act of mercy because he's trying to protect the security of the whole universe. In other words, God, brothers and sisters, must destroy sin for the eternal security of the whole universe. And friends, if this makes sense, would you please say amen? You see, our God is a God that loves sinners. And how many of you are thankful for that? Oh, friends, he loves sinners no matter who we are or what we've done or what kind of life we have lived. God loves sinners, but friends, at the very same time, just as much as he loves sinners, God hates sin. Do you know why? We serve a God that loves sinners with the perfect love, but he hates sin with the perfect hatred. Do you know why? Because sin hurts the ones that he loves so much. Sin hurts the human race. It hurts his creation, not when he hurts him. He doesn't hate sin just because it hurts sin. He hates it because it hurts his children. It's just like, you know, I love children. And because I love children, I must hate child molestation. Because if I tolerate child molestation, then I don't really love children. Does that make sense? You see, I love druggies. And if I truly love druggies, then I must hate drugs. Are you with me, yes or no? And so God's love for sinners is in proportion to his hatred towards sin. And so God is going to destroy sin one day. Why? Because of his love for sinners. In other words, he's going to rescue us from the sin that causes so much pain. The measure of God's hatred towards sin is in, a, is in proportion to his love for sinners. He has an infinite love for sinners. Therefore, he has an infinite hatred towards sin that hurts us. And the, another reason is because, friends, sin is combustible. Sin is what? In other words, it destroys all that it touches. It's flammable, friends. Sin, brothers and sisters, destroys everything that, 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 that surrounds it. It touches and destroys And so God's justice compels him to eradicate sin. But before the the justice will take place, before the eradication of sin, his mercy compels him to first separate that sin from the sinner. His mercy compels him to first separate. You see, he must destroy sin one day. But before he destroys the sin, he is working overtime. The gospel of Christ, the whole purpose, the plan of salvation is to separate the sin from the sinner so that God can destroy the sin without destroying the sinner and so that God can save the sinner without saving the sin at the same time. Do you see it, friends? The gospel, let me, let me say it again in case you missed it. The gospel is this. God must destroy sin and he, has to, he must save sinners. The only way to do this is to separate sin from the sinner. And this is what Jesus is doing in these last days. And how does he separate sin from the sinner? Not by force, but by love. Bible says in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, Yea, I have loved thee with a what kind of love? Everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I done what? Not driven you with the whip, but drawn you with my love. You see, what God is wanting to do, he's wanting to draw us away from sin and the world and wickedness. He wants to draw us away from that and to himself. And he does this not by the fear of hell, not by the reward of heaven. He does it by the everlasting love. The love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross, brothers and sisters, is to put into the hearts of the human race a hatred towards sin. 
and a love for Him. And it's only by that love can we gain the victory over the sin and the wickedness of this world. Can you say amen? But here's the thing, friends. God will never force Himself upon us. He will never impose His will upon our lives. We choose our own destiny. And we can choose to cling to sin if we want it. We can choose to reject the, resi- the, 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 the drawing power of the love of God. And friends, when we ignore him, neglect him, and when we push the Lord's love away, who are we really hurting, friends? We're hurting him, of course, but really, we're hurting ourselves. Notice what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verse 36. The Bible says, but he that sins against me wrongs who? You're not just wronging God, you're wronging your own soul. All they that hate me love what? Bible says that those who hate the things of God, in their hatred towards God, what they're really loving is death. They're longing for death. And so, brothers and sisters, the death of the wicked, the punishment of the wicked, which is death, is an act of infinite mercy upon them because that's what they want. So God is giving to them what they love. If they hate God, they're loving death. And so God gives them exactly what they want. You see, the reason why the wicked are destroyed is because God knows that sinners would not be happy in heaven. They would be miserable in heaven because there's not the sins and the things that they like in heaven. All the worldliness is not there. And so they would be bored out of their mind and they would be miserable. And God does not want to take people to heaven that would not be happy there. You see, friends, heaven is a place for those who want to be there. Amen? You see, to the wicked, if God was to take them to heaven in their condition, heaven to them would be a place of tormenting fire. Because God's presence is a consuming fire, the Bible says. You see, the wicked would find no joy in the heavenly mansions above. One person said it like this, the sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from companionship with holy beings. Could he be permitted to enter heaven? It would have no joy for him. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns there in every heart, responding to the heart of infinite love, would touch no answering chord in his soul. His thoughts, interests, motives would be alien to those that actuate the sinless dwellers there. He would be a discordant note in the melody of heaven. Heaven would be to him a place of torture. A place of what? The wicked would not be happy there. It would be a place of eternal torment. A place of torture. The wicked would long to be hidden from him who is its light and the center of its joy. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven, but rather they are shut out by their own unfitness for its its companionship. The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. They would welcome destruction that they may be hidden from the face of him who died to receive them. You see, friends, if God was to bring the wicked to heaven, they would be miserable. And so allowing them to be destroyed in hellfire is really a blessing to them because it puts them out of their misery, friends. It would be a sweet release to the mental anguish of being separated from God. And Friends, how will God respond? How will he feel about those who choose to be lost? God is not going to rejoice, friends. He's going to weep. The Bible says in Ezekiel 18.32, For I have how much pleasure? No pleasure in the death of him that dies, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. Friends, God has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. 
He is not a vindictive, angry God that is seeking vengeance. No, friends. He does it for the sake of the wicked to put them out of their own misery. You see, His justice in the punishment towards sin is really an act of infinite mercy. But friends, God right now is pleading with us, you don't have to perish with your sins. Give it to me. Let me remove it from your life and receive my peace. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, the Bible says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you what? Life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what? Choose life that both thou and thy seed, your offspring, your children may live. Do you see, friends, that our decisions affect that of our offspring? Because whatever decision we make, we're giving an example to our children and our loved ones. And that's one of the reasons why we must decide for ourselves not just for ourselves, but for the sake of our, 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 those who are in our influence to be an example. We must choose life, choose blessing. We have a choice, friends. We determine our own destiny by the choices that we make. And friends, God respects our freedom to choose. He will not force us to be saved if we don't want to. We choose our own destiny. And friends, in choosing sin, what we're really choosing is destruction. In choosing sin, we are choosing destruction. And thus, when the wicked are destroyed, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 28 and verse 1 that it is God's strange act. What kind of act? And friends, why is it called a strange act? Because the destruction of anything is foreign to the nature of God. You see, God's nature is to create, not to destroy. It's to build up, not to throw down. But friends, we see that God is a just God. And therefore, the destruction of sin will take place. But when it does, he's not going to rejoice. He's going to weep bitterly. It is a strange act because now God has to live for eternity without some of his kids that rejected him and that, and that refused to be saved. And so it's in this context where we see that the justice and the punishment to sin is really an act of mercy for the sinner and an act of mercy for the security of the entire universe. It's in this context that we now ask and answer the most commonly asked questions concerning the topic of hell. And here's how we're going to break up the study this evening. We're going to answer the question, what is hell? When is hell? Where is hell? How long does it last? And how do we see God's love in hell fire? Are you ready for the study tonight? Some of you may not be ready. Are you ready? So the first question is, what exactly is hell. Friends, if you study this word hell, you'll find that it's mentioned 54 times in the Bible. How many times? The word hell is in the Bible 54 times. In the Old Testament, 31 times, it is translated as the word sheol, which literally means the grave. What does it mean? So whenever you find the word hell in the Old Testament, it's the word Hebrew word sheol. It does not denote a place of burning. It simply means the grave. And then in the New Testament, the word hell, 11 times, is the Greek word Hades, which also means the grave. And so the a majority of times that you find the word hell in the Bible, it does not denote a place of burning at all. Majority of the time when you find the word hell, it simply means the grave. And who goes to the grave? The dead. It's the place of the dead, friends. Now, there are 12 times in the New Testament where the word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Can you say that? And that word Gehenna is the hell that we commonly think about as the place of burning. It is known as a place of destruction. Now, friends, this word Gehenna literally means the Valley of Hinnom. What does it mean? Now, the Valley of Hinnom was south of the city of Jerusalem, 
And it was actually the town dump. It was a valley that the, the, the people of Jerusalem would bring the, all the garbage to. In fact, even dead bodies were thrown there. And the garbage and the refuse and the waste and the dead animals were constantly being burning in the valley of Hinnom. And whatever was not consumed by fire was consumed by worms. And it's this valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, that the Bible uses as a symbol. As a what? Not a literal place, but a symbol of the complete destruction of the wicked in hell fire. Now tonight, we already understand about the grave. We studied that before, that when a person dies, they go into the grave until the resurrection. And so tonight, we want to focus specifically on the word Gehenna, the, the hell fire, the hell that we normally think of as the place of burning. So the question is, where is Gehenna? And when will it begin to burn? Well, friends, Jesus told us when it will take place. He said it will take place at the end of the world. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a story about a parable that went forth to, go to, went forth to sow seed in the field. And the Bible tells us that wheat and tares grew up. And the tares represents the wicked one, those who practice evil, those who reject the gift of God. And the Bible tells us that the tares were gathered together and completely burnt up. They were destroyed. But notice when that it would take place. Notice what it says. Write it down. Matthew 13, verses 40 to 43. Write it down. Read the whole thing when you get home tonight. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the what? end of this world the son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity that's lawlessness and shall cast him into a furnace of fire there shall be welling and gnashing of teeth then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father so we find that the tares the wicked are going to be burnt up and destroyed at the end of the world in fact notice again in verses 49 and 50 so shall it be when at the end of the world the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast him into the furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so in these passages, the Bible makes it clear that the wicked are destroyed at the end of the world. In other words, though there is no hell burning right now, friends, where the wicked are being tortured. The Bible doesn't teach this, friends. The Bible teaches clearly that the wicked are going to burn at the end of the world. In fact, notice another one. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, write it down. We're going to compare scripture with scripture tonight. Bible says that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to, what is that next word? Reserve the unjust unto when? The day of judgment to be, what? So friends, that word, to, that, those two words, to be, what tense is that? That's future tense, right? And so the Bible is clear that the unjust, the wicked, are reserved unto the day of judgment to be punished. In other words, the wicked will be destroyed on the day of judgment. They're not being burnt up right now somewhere in the center of the earth. The friends of the Bible does not teach this, even though the majority of Christianity believe it. In fact, notice another one. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Bible says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept where? In store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of un." godly men so the bible tells us that the wicked and the earth are restored reserved unto fire they're not burning right now friends but on the day of judgment that's that's when the wicked will be punished and they're going to be destroyed by the fires of hell now here's the next question where exactly are they reserved and when exactly is the final day of judgment well let's review what we studied the last two nights we learned that when jesus comes 
He's going to call the righteous from their sleepy graves in the first resurrection. Notice John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are where? In the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So here we find Jesus tells us that there are actually two different resurrections. The resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. We learned last night that these two resurrections happen two separate times on either side of the 1,000-year millennial period in Revelation chapter 20. We learned clearly last night that when Jesus comes at his second coming, that's when the first resurrection will take place. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the first resurrection when Jesus comes to take us home to our heavenly mansion. And then we learn that the saints will reign in heaven for 1,000 years. Satan will be bound by a chain of circumstance on a desolate earth during that same time. And then at the end of the 1,000-year millennium, the second resurrection will take place. That's the resurrection of damnation, the resurrection of the lost. And it's on this day that the final judgment is going to be executed upon the wicked. It's on this day that they will be destroyed in hell fire. Revelation 21 verse 2 described it. And it said that the holy city, New Jerusalem, descended from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and it descended from heaven down to the world. And the Bible tells us as the holy city descends after the thousand years that the wicked are now resurrected. Notice Revelation 20 verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So at the end of the thousand years, they come up in the second resurrection. They live again, in other words. And then it says in, in verse 12, and the dead were what? Judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And so here is the final day of judgment that the wicked were reserved unto to be punished, as we read in the book of Second Peter. So the final day of judgment is at the end of the thousand years at the resurrection of damnation. And the Bible tells us that the wicked, they begin to surround the city of God. And they tried to take by force that which God once offered to them in love. And as they tried to, to, to overcome the kingdom of, of God, the final showdown, it says in verse 9, that fire came down from God out of heaven and did what? Devoured them. Friends, this is when hell fire begins to burn. It's not burning right now, but it begins to burn at the end of the thousand years on the final day of judgment. And the Bible says that the wicked are going to be devoured by the fire. What is that word again? And friends, do you remember what that word devoured means? If you devour something, is there anything left? If you put a plate of food in front of yourself, if you devour it, that means that there's nothing, there's no leftovers, in other words. And that's what the Bible tells us is the fate of the wicked. They're going to be devoured by the fire of God's holy presence. In fact, notice, the Bible tells us that the world will then turn into a lake of fire. It says in verses 14 and 15, and the dead and, uh, excuse me, and death and hell, that's the grave, were cast into the what? Lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the what? Lake of fire. The Bible tells us that this world is going to turn into a lake of fire. And all the wicked are going to be consumed and burnt up in this lake of fire. And we find that God ties the second death and the lake of fire together. In fact, notice, Peter said the same thing. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible tells us that the earth also, 
and the works that are therein shall be what? So where does the lake of fire burn, friends, according to these passages? It burns on the top side of the earth, not in the center of the earth. Hell burns on the surface of the earth. In fact, notice another one. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 22, the Bible says, For a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell. And, sh- and that's the grave, friends. That word hell is the grave. And shall consume the what? Earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. The Bible is clear that hell burns on the surface of the earth. The world, the earth is going to be consumed by fire. And friends, the reason why God uses fire to destroy the wicked, as as I mentioned before, it's not so much something to punish the wicked, but rather to purify. You see, friends, if you're to bury a body in the ground, you could dig it out of the ground. If you're to throw someone in the ocean, you can fish them back out. But when you burn something with fire, can you ever get it back? Yes or no? Friends, fire is something that brings finality. Fire is a purifying agent in comparison to a burial or or, or being thrown into the ocean. The fire that destroys the wicked is the fire that purifies the universe of sin, evil, and suffering. And the Bible tells us in Revelation 21 verse 8, it says, But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and all and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the what? So we find that the second death is tied to the lake of fire. It's the complete annihilation of the wicked. They're eradicated from the universe, and there is no hope of a resurrection. It's completely finished. They're consumed, purified by the fire. The second death is, is connected to the lake of fire, and here's the reason, friends. Remember, what is the second death? We learned last night that the first death is the death that all will die as a result of living in a sinful world. You see, everyone is going to die the first death, whether you're righteous or wicked. If you believe in Jesus or if you don't believe in Jesus, we are all going to die the first death. You see, friends, listen, Jesus did not come to save us from the first death. He came to save us from the second death. The first death is a death that all will die as a result of living in a sinful world. But the second death is a lot more serious. The second death is an eternal or a permanent death that only the wicked would die as a result of their personal rebellion against God. You see, the first death is the results of sin. But the second death is the penalty. It is the wages of sin. It's the penalty for sin, friends. And remember that the experience of hell is not so much the literal fire. The experience of hell is being cut off from God for eternity. It's being eradicated from the universe. The experience of hell is mental, friends. It is the anguish and the agony of seeing what you missed, seeing every opportunity God gave you to receive it, and then seeing every excuse and every sin You allowed to stand between you and the salvation of God. And then the unbearable remorse and regret that comes upon your conscience. That, my friends, is the experience of hell. And the fire that devours and destroys the wicked is a sweet release from the mental anguish. You see, friends, the second death is eradication. The second death, brothers and sisters, is eternal separation from God without any hope of a resurrection. And some people think that Satan is going to be the hired superintendent of hell, but friends, he's going to die the second death as well. He's going to be fuel for the fire. Notice what it says in verse 10. 
and the devil that deceived them was cast into the what? Lake of fire and brimstone. So we find that Satan himself is going to be destroyed in the lake of fire, which is where the second death is experienced. In fact, notice in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 18 and 19, write it down, very important verse. The Bible tells us that Satan is going to be destroyed from, uh, from, from the inside out. Notice what it says, Ezekiel 28, verse 18 and 19. I will bring forth a fire from where? From the midst of thee. And I will bring thee to ashes. Upon where? The earth. In the sight of all them that behold thee. And never shalt thou be any more. Friends, God is going to put an end to Satan, sin, and wickedness. Can you say Amen. And it says he's going to bring a fire from the midst of him. You see, that's where sin began in the heart of Lucifer. As he began to be proud, as he rebelled against God in his heart. So God is going to destroy sin from the very source, from the midst of the heart of Satan. And the Bible says that he is going to be brought to ashes and his existence, he shall be, thou, uh, never shalt thou be anymore. In other words, he is going to be completely eradicated from the universe. That is the second death. And friends, the Bible tells us in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9, and he shall make an utter end, and affliction shall not rise up the second time. Affliction will never be ever again in the universe. And then out of the ashes of the old world, God is going to create a brand new world before the eyes of the redeemed. Second Peter 3.13 tells us, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. And then will be fulfilled the words of Jesus, Blessed are the meek, for the meek shall inherit thee. It happens at the end of the thousand years, friends. Well, the world is purified by fire. Wickedness and evil and Satan is completely eradicated from the existence of the universe. God then recreates the world, and then the meek will inherit the earth. And friends, what a sigh of relief the universe will experience when God puts an end to the controversy once and for all. You see, friends, hellfire is something that we should look forward to. Can you say amen? It's going to be wonderful, friends. Affliction will not rise up the second time. It is finished. It is over. No more Satan tempting you and trying to discourage you and deter you and destroy you. Our enemy is vanquished forever, and God, our King, remains victorious. Oh, friends, what a sigh of relief it's going to be when it finally comes to an end. I can't wait for that day. How about you? It's something that we can look forward to, friends. It's not bad news. It is good news. God does this not because he's a vindictive, angry God. He does it for the eternal security of the whole universe. He must put an end to the controversy once and for all. And friends, if this is making sense, if this is clear, would you please say amen? And so we see that hellfire is not burning right now, and it does not burn in the center of the earth. But it's going to burn at the end of the thousand years on the top side, on the surface of the earth. And friends, if this is clear so far, would you please say amen? The world will try to satisfy that longing in your soul. You may search this wide world over, but you'll be just as before. You'll never find true satisfaction until you found 
from the broken wells of this world and we're only going to thirst again Jesus promised that when we drink of the living water we shall thirst no more that song is very special especially coming from the heart of the one that just sang it I just I remember just about four years ago maybe even less than that where the BJ was singing on stages for the world and for himself singing reggae music glorifying sin and it's so beautiful to see and hear him sing for his maker tonight amen and he i believe he's truly found the satisfaction in christ the satisfaction that he did not find in the world he's found in jesus what a powerful testimony what a powerful witness